You are listening to a message from Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Our passion is to experience and express grace. Join us. So we're going to take a break from Luke uh, for today. And we're going to dive into the world of junior high life a little bit. What we're doing on Wednesday nights across the street, uh, we are doing uh, First John. And we're systematically going through it. So we're going to go through... Uh, a few verses here, a few key verses at the end of First John, uh, chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. And essentially what this is, is if you're familiar with um, surgical procedures, are you, do you know what a surgical timeout is? A surgical timeout is right before the procedure starts, the surgeon stops. And the essential people in the operating room all sit there and confirm, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Are we sure we're not amputating the wrong leg? Are you sure that this is the proper patient? I'm not joking about that. Um, are we sure that, of all of these things, right? And then they go in and they, they do the procedure. Yes? Okay, Ray says it was yes. Um, and so what, what John is doing is, this, this book is rife with stuff. He's loving people well. He's trying to give them advice how to live but he wants to land them in a good spot. And he's doing a surgical timeout here, almost at the end of the book, to remind them of who they are and of who God is. So read along with me on the screen or in your Bibles if you have them, as I read 1 John 5, uh, verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we come today with uh, many things on our hearts and minds. Um, we're busy people. We can't breathe sometimes. We're overwhelmed. Um, we're overwhelmed with suffering. We're overwhelmed with uh, providing well-being and care for other people, uh, older than us, younger than us, parents, children, friends. We come into a place like this, and we hope to meet you here. And we pray that your Holy Spirit is active and among us. pray that you would... Um, fill our hearts with a desire to see you uh, working in life and to um, steward the good, the good gifts that you've given us and the life that you've given us and that we would live and operate um, out of love uh, and affection that's given to us by you, uh, not out of fear uh, or any other reasons. So be with us today. Pray that the words of uh, my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto you. In the name of your great son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Last Sunday evening, uh, after High Life, I was standing in a doorway in the great room. And I was speaking with a young lady. And um, she was telling me about these uh, things going on in her life. Some problems at school, which led to problems with some friends. And then that led to arguments with her parents. Um, and just a kind of a desperate place she was in as a 16-year-old where she didn't feel welcome at home, she didn't feel welcome at school, there was no real place for her to be. 
And um, as conversations go, uh, she got to the point where she looked at me kind of with tears in her eyes and she said, I, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't, I don't even know if Jesus is real in my heart or not. And just then, as though it had been foreordained before the foundation of the earth, I was smacked in the side of a face with a wet tortilla (laughs) by a junior in high school sprinting off behind me. And as I turned to look and find him, I was smacked on this side of my face with another wet tortilla. As that guy jumped and ran the other way, And if you ever wonder, is there a moment in time that can encapsulate youth ministry? (laughs) It was the tearful, heartfelt conversation with this girl mixed with being smacked in the face by processed flour. (laughs) Christine and Ty and I have this opportunity multiple times a week with these students um, to find places where the gospel can intersect with their lives. Um, And I have a unique opportunity uh, to walk not only alongside of those students, but walk alongside parents um, and other families as they go through short problems with their students, but also discussions about marriage, um, discussions about life and finances and things like that, where um, it's it's just a great, great job and a great thing uh, that I get to do. But the thing that I've found now, I've always thought this, but I believe it now, I think more than I ever have, is that whether you're dealing with a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old, a 36-year-old, a 56-year-old, there's something um, about all of us that we're all pretty much the same. We're all pretty much the same. We all want to be loved. We all want community, we all want to be understood, we all struggle and we sin, and we all need reminders of gospel basics. And so what John is doing as he comes to the end of this letter is he's slowing down with his readers, and he's reminding them and he's encouraging them with gospel reality. And this morning I want to slow down with you, and I want to remind you, and I want to encourage you with gospel reality. If you're anything like me, um, you don't have time to take a breath in life, right? There's always something new popping up at work that needs attention. Uh, My house finds new ways to break almost every single day. I can't find my friends, uh, mostly because they don't exist, but the ones who do exist are just as busy as I am, and we're all moving in different directions, and so connecting is very, very difficult with them. If you're married, um, there seems to be no time to get together and have any real or or vital conversation. Uh, We live parallel lives a lot of the time and we pass. Um, I don't have time uh, and I wish that was it. I don't have the inclination to have substantial communication with my wife when I have the opportunity to. Our kids have more activities than we could have ever imagined when we were kids. Um, For some of us, self-medicating is the only way that we can get to sleep. And then tomorrow, we get to look forward to more of the same. You wake up and boom, whether you get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, sometime between 4.30 and 7, right, Hosea? Whenever we get up, life starts and you go the next day. 
Everything around us seems so out of control that we white-knuckle onto anything that seems manageable and controllable to us. And for some of us, we seek control so much that we burden ourselves with actually being responsible for everything, for banking, for baseball, for football, for dance, for soccer, right? For vehicle maintenance, for basketball, for hockey, for robotics, for tennis. If something goes wrong, I messed up. It was my fault. I should have seen it coming. I had my day planned out. I should have known what was going to happen, right? And others of you are sitting there going, yeah, man, I was there. I know I knuckled for a while, but... Let me tell you, I got it all handled now. You're welcome for me being here, preacher man. I'm glad to hear what you have to say to me today. And that's fair. So we walk in here on Sundays for this one day a week where some of us drag in, some of us come in um, happily, joyfully. Some of us pour out of our minivans uh, and we, we stumble in here with the hope of being renewed uh, and equipped for the week ahead. And those of us uh, who want to be here, we're desperately seeking some assurance from our Heavenly Father that He still loves us and that He's still in control. Those of us who don't want to be here, I'm glad you're here. I hope you stay and I hope you listen. God is still faithful today. I needed to hear that this morning as much as anybody else. I desperately needed to hear that. So I have great news for those who have limped into the service to worship their Heavenly Father, knowing that there's no other way for you. I have great, a great reminder to those who grab and clutch at control whenever you get the chance, knowing that you need a heart change. And I have great news for you if you came here uh, either out of uh, antagonism or... Uh, apathy or whatever else might drive you here. Our God is in control. Through Jesus, he's shown more comprehension of your life than we could ever fathom. Through Jesus, he's met you in your sufferings and the sufferings of your loved ones yet again. Through Jesus, he's made a way for you to turn from yourself and to run back to him. And through Jesus, he has made a way to humble, proud hearts, and to melt hearts of stone. Our God is in control. If you look on your bulletin, I did a really detailed outline for you so you'd be, it'd be easy to follow along today. Story is one way that we can show that God is in control. Story is this kind of kitschy thing that a lot of people are into. Know your story, tell me your story. Uh, Counselors and psychologists will tell you that the most important way to understand um, the things around you is to know and to understand your story. Uh, Oprah and other pop psychologists and counselors will tell you that knowing these things is the way to really see your divine light and be open to see the divine light in others, right? Let's, see, let's just see how John describes this story. Start there in 1 John uh, chapter 5 and verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. A 
lot of the conversations I have with youth center around um, who is really in control, they may or may not know that, but that's what the conversation is about. Um, I love to have open forums and open discussions about what do you think of God and who he is in uh, times of suffering, uh, in times of wants, um, in times that are ugly and dark, because sometimes you need to hear yourself say things out loud to really know what you're thinking. And those little sound bites are usually the way that I can dive in with them into life and into their stories and into understanding where they are. Because some of us see story as this thing that they don't really need to get into. But guess what? We're all formed. We all came from somewhere. We are some kind of a product of our parents or our grandparents or our adopted parents and our environment and our siblings and all of those kind of things. And sin patterns and the ways we lean into life all come from somewhere. But most of us have spent so much of our lives trying to hide those things because we don't really want to be known by other people. Um, we've been hurt in a lot of ways. And if you put yourself on the line and you've not been accepted, uh, you start to figure out, okay, what is kind of a way I can lay low and not have to be accepted, right? And we tell these stories about ourselves as though we're islands and we're kind of floating around and no one else really knows where we are and what we're getting at. And in those stories, we kind of lose track of who God is. Covenant children, people who deal with a lot of unchurched kids and kids who are nominal uh, Christians. It's in the air and in the water here in Huntsville. And uh, there's not a lot of embracing of um, the reality of God being God. And John very plainly says right here that God's story is of supreme importance. When he says, if we receive the testimony of men... He'd be talking about a few things there, but most likely he's talking about prophets and apostles and people who have gone out in the name of God talking about this God who is faithful and who loves and who pursues people. And they're willing to receive that testimony. And John's saying, I got something a little bit more powerful for what, than that. You're willing to receive that, but you're not willing to receive God's testimony from himself? That's what's most important. And why is God's testimony the most important? Because he's offering you his son. He's offering you Jesus. I took some time with this uh, junior crew, that's juniors that help out with junior high life the other day, to let them know we have all these conversations and sometimes I don't remind them of a simple presupposition of mine. A presupposition being something that I go through life in the back of my mind that everything is filtered through. My simple presupposition is that regardless of being raised in a wonderful Christian home by good Christian parents and Christian grandparents who love me, all of my siblings are believers. Despite um, being well-educated at a good academic institution as well as a theological and heart-changing institution, I don't need all of that stuff. I need Jesus. And that's an abstract and foreign concept to us because we love knowledge and we love to think about things. But my presupposition isn't that I need to know more about Jesus. My presupposition is the only thing I can know and want is Jesus. And that's a passion that has to drive me because that's what the Bible describes. And that's what God offers. That's why his testimony is so important. And we see in John 5, 37, this, a similar word there. 
As the Father who, and the Father who sent me, this is Jesus talking, uh, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The word witness and testimony, that's the same in the Greek. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. He's talking to these people about rejecting Jesus himself for who he is. And John, that same writer, is using the same word here to tell us that that's what's so supreme about God's testimony. Jesus is what is of most importance. Um, I grew up at the beach, and for any of you that have ever visited the beach, there's probably not a much more impressive scene than a rough ocean on a big day, say during a storm or a hurricane's approaching or something like that. And inside of this impressive thing of nature, there's probably nothing that's more frightening than getting caught in a riptide. Has anybody ever heard of a riptide or understand what they are? This is a picture of a riptide. And you see the currents jutting out in between the waves. And essentially what happens is you get caught and it tries to drag you under and suck you out to sea. And you have uh, two options at that point in time. Um, I was raised as a pretty good swimmer. I was taught uh, how to swim in an ocean. But when you feel uh, the ocean grabbing you and doing something with you that you don't want to have happen and there's not an easy way to get out of it, I tell you, it's much easier to be afraid. And if you start to fear and you start to fight that thing, your fear will lead you to getting dragged under and you're gone. It's a sad thing that happens to kids at the beach almost every year. That's why you see signs when you go there that say riptides, you know, stay out of the water. You see red flags on the beach depending on where you go, things like that. Being a good swimmer and growing up at the beach, I was also blessed with a certain amount of gifts that if I just stewarded my gifts well, I could get out of it. Generally, swimming parallel to the shore is an easy way to get out of a riptide. Not an easy way, you have to work at it, but if you do it for a while, you'll find out, oh, if I just do this thing and don't try to think too much about it, I'm going to actually get out of this situation. Don't get caught in riptides. Don't go in the ocean when there are riptides. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying it happened to me a couple of times. My mom probably doesn't appreciate the stories, but at any rate, that's what happened. So when we think of our stories, more often than not, our stories are things that we're trying to form or things that we're trying to change and things that we're trying to do based upon what's happening currently and what's happened in the past. When what John is saying here is God's story is the one that's supreme. And simultaneously, our stories actually matter because our stories are supposed to operate inside of God's story. We're supposed to be a, a demonstration of his faithfulness and of what human obedience is supposed to look like. We don't obey out of fear or out of secular self-improvement. We obey because we have an ever-faithful father who loves us and wants to care for us. We've all been given gifts. And constantly, life throws riptides at us. It happens. Why? Because we're sinful. The people around us are sinful. The world itself is in a culture of sin. And guess what? There's some very real factor that we don't always think about. Satan does not like Christians acting like Christians. Satan does not like Christians being able to communicate gospel truth to their children. Riptides are very real and they're thrown at us all the time. And there's nothing more that Satan likes to see when a riptide is thrown at you 
than for a Christian to be stricken with fear and to start struggling against it. Rather than stewarding their gifts well and being obedient to the God who loves them, who said, hey, when a riptide comes, swim parallel to the shore. I've got you. You're safe. Our finances are a way that we do that a lot, aren't they? I'm not criticizing, by the way, anybody. I'm asking for heart checks for all of us at this point because this is what I was doing to myself as I was preparing this message. Savings, uh, 529s for the kids, uh, tithe, uh, how much you spend on houses, on cars, how many cars you have, uh, do you have a lake house, how many lake houses do you have, you know, all of these things. We make choices about where we spend our money. And we make choices about jobs based upon how much money we get. And there are ways to spend your money that are excellent stewardship of that. And there are ways to spend your money that are absolutely fearful that if you don't handle your money correctly, somehow you're not going to be taken care of. Because, what? Life is on top of you. And you're in control of your finances. You're in control of how much you have. You're in control of the stock market. You're in control of global wars. You're in control of natural disasters. And if any of those things happen and you didn't invest in the right thing or have your portfolio diversified quite the right way, man, I was so dumb. I can't believe I lost all that money. You can do all of those same things and be an excellent stewardship. Don't hear me criticizing that. I'm not criticizing an action. I'm trying to go underneath of it and examine our hearts and invite you to examine your heart. What do you do with the money that God's given to you and why do you do it? Have you ever even considered that question? Man, our children. Discipline. Why do we discipline our children? What's the heart behind disciplining your children? Is it out of fear? Or are you trying to steward your children well? Your primary relationship to your child, if you can consider yourself a believer, your primary relationship to your child is not dictator of your home. Your primary relationship to your child is mature believer, attempting to influence and raise immature believers to maturity. That is your primary role according to God. And you've been given a specialized role in that as a parent as the chief discipler and the people who are closest to this person to raise them up, right, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're the one closest to that. Where does discipline come from? Sports and dancing, um, those around here, man, I've had seven varsity letters in high school and when I say that out loud to people here and they know that I went on to play collegiate and professional athletics, they go, how did you do that without playing your sport 12 months a year, 18 times a week for three hours? And it's a different world. A lot of your kids are not going to be Major League Baseball players or NHL players or something like that. Why are they doing all of these travel teams? What's going on with that? What is it costing you? What is it benefiting you? Is your child really the one? I had a chance to teach champions in Western Carolina, champions tennis players, I'm sorry, in Western Carolina. These were 12 to 16 year old kids who were um, excellent, excellent, excellent. And about 25 of them came to see me. And I had a conversation with each of the parents individually about how their child was really going to be the one. We're in Western Carolina, I'm at Biltmore Forest Country Club in Asheville. 
That is one little pocket of one place in one little spot of the country that's not even a tennis haven. And they thought their child was gonna be the one. Are you stewarding your child's time well? Are you stewarding their hearts well? What are you showing them in that? And then general idolatry of our children. I'm sorry, I'll go back to that. I also have some vicarious people. I'll tell you, I'm about to draft our eight-year-old's coach pitch team in the next few weeks. I'm not drafting kids, I'm drafting parents. I have no interest in having that guy, you know, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. I don't want that guy sitting, you know, because that guy won't sit outside of the fence. He sits on the field, right? I want people who love their kids and want to see them have a good time and improve at a sport, learn how to be good teammates, learn how to get, get along with other people, right? Um, idolatry of our kids, that's one that is, uh, Gimli and I struggle with that one a lot. At what point is your child an idol? At what point are they, um, are they really another human that you can let go and, and let be uh, a human, another of God's creations to grow and to learn? And then pleasures in life. Relationships. Man, we don't know how to do relationships, most of us. And they can easily become things that we operate out of fear completely rather than stewarding them well. We run away from people that we're in conflict with. High school boys and girls, especially boys, they love to, uh, there's something about a girl, you know, she looked at me, oh, she must want to be with me. And they just kind of are on top of them all the time in that, hey, how you doing? You know, there's a creepy dude that waits outside of my cl- every class for me, and I don't know what's going on with that. But we do it too. We find our need and our worth in people around us, in our spouse. And that's not where God calls that to be. Alcohol and food, you know, these are things that are great gifts and things that can be misused well. Uh, and then our bodies. Um, there's, there's certainly this thing of our bodies where we, um, we don't want to die. We're afraid of dying and we take living well to a certain extent that is actually operating out of fear rather than um, stewarding the good gift that God's given us, right? And our Heavenly Father doesn't call us to live out of fear in our world. That's not the call that he gives us. He doesn't call us to be in control of our stories so that we can magically fix things and talk about how awesome our children are as though they're a a total reflection of us. We're called to steward our stories for our own sanity and for the glory of his kingdom. Stewarding your story looks different than controlling your story. And God's given us all sorts of steps to, con- to steward our story that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. He calls us because his testimony shows us that he is in control of our stories. And John's desperate for his readers to know the love of God that's shown in Jesus Christ. We're going to move on to love now. To John, as it, as it should be to us, the question is not whether the testimony of the Father is uh, true. The question is this, and we're going to head here pretty strong for the rest of the time. Do you believe it? The testimony of God is true. Do you believe it? And if so, how is that shown? Let's read verse 10 again. 
as it comes, oh, that's a different picture. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God, uh, whoever does not believe God, comma, has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This truth of God's sovereign gift of his testimony mixed with what is quite clearly our human response to that can make the more Presbyterian among us a little bit uncomfortable as we're reading it. John isn't talking about random belief. He's, the one who, he's talking about the one who believes that the testimony is inside of himself. There is a self-attestation. Something is happening inside of you that cannot deny the presence of the testimony in you and that it is absolutely the truth and forever your life will be changed because of that. It wasn't walking to the front sometime at a conference. It wasn't emotionally thinking, man, that music was really good and I like the fog machines and the lights too. So I like this Jesus thing. It's this incredible feeling, an overwhelming feeling inside of you that this is true and that this is actually happening. It can happen in those times. I'm sorry, don't hear me not saying that. Jesus is literally indwelling people, always exposing the heart of the believer. And I say this makes some of us uncomfortable because we're seeing that man is somehow responsible for what's going on. I'm not going to make you raise hands about you feeling uncomfortable with me saying man in this verse is somehow responsible for what's going on. The objective uh, truth revealed by the Holy Spirit is intertwined with our subjective response. It's what's happening here. And I have a secret. These things are not at odds. These things are not at odds. There's not a tension about this in the Bible. Paul does not write Romans 9 without quickly following it up with Romans 10. These things follow each other. And there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to be afraid of it. We see here that you can't have the testimony of God revealed to a person without that person responding. I think I just said that in a little more Presbyterian terms that we can fathom. If God has given this gift to someone and the testimony is inside of them, that person cannot reject that gift. It cannot happen. The rest of verse 10 exposes a little more of what I mean. Um, If you see there, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. You can hear this testimony. You can come here every single week and hear Will and Ron and Derek and every once in a while me preach good gospel sermons and not be a Christian. This testimony has not penetrated inside of you. You do not have Jesus in you and you do not want Jesus in you. That's where the responsibility factor matters. Because God wants you to be there and you turn it away. You say no. There's no room between believing in Jesus and this testimony of God wanting Jesus. There's no middle ground that you can operate on and call yourself a Christian. They are together. Scripture scripture demonstrates that all the way through. And and it seems harsh, but it's actually not because the Bible is full of stories about God's people desiring control. That's all we want is control. We don't want to give it up. Where did it start? Adam and Eve, right? 
Adam and Eve wanted control. They wanted knowledge of good and evil. And so they sinned. Abraham, poor Abraham, he did the same thing right after he was called and then did it again a bunch of years later, pretending that his wife wasn't his wife, giving her to the local ruler, calling her his sister. Moses struck the rock, didn't speak to the rock. Aaron led the people to make, to make a calf out of gold to worship because his brother up, you know, communing with God, this wasn't really happening. These are God's people. These are our great leaders that we think about. Jacob stealing his brother's birthright. Joshua's army not doing what they were supposed to do when they went into the promised land. The people in Judges wanting a judge, and then it comes, and then bad things happen, and they don't want him, and then they did what was evil in their own eyes, and then, oh, God, give us something else. David, staying home, taking a woman that wasn't his, and killing her husband. Jonah, who had the chance to go, and said he went down, 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 hidden, headed in the opposite direction. Peter, Jesus had explained to him that his time had come, and Peter still doesn't like it. And then outside in the courtyard, he denies Jesus like he's not even there. You, me, the depth of God's love for his people that we find in this testimony of his son can't be, cannot be overstated. He went through time and space. All of the story of this book is about his faithfulness and love for us, our stiff-arming of him, and that he was going to do it anyway. And it looked like this. It looked like blood, and it looked like darkness, and it looked like pain, and it looked like suffering so that we could be back with him. He sent his only son. That's the picture that's given to us. For those of you that have kids, imagine sending any of your children. That's the image he's planting in us. He sent his only son to show his love for us. And that is where eternal life is found. Our father pursues us in love in ways that we could never imagine. Right? Greater love has no one than this, that he'd lay down his life for his friends. And God gave us his son to do that. And this story of God's love leads us to our ultimate hope, which is eternity in our father's family. In John 1.12, uh, we know that to all who received him, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Our father builds his family through his son. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. That's it. That's the testimony. Those who uh, have the son have life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is our time out. This is John saying, Take inventory, take stock of what's going on right now. If you have the son, you have life. If not, you don't. And the father's desire, we see it in 1 Peter and in Timothy, 
his desire is that all would come to a saving knowledge of him. All would have eternal life. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is it. He's our reward. We have life from abiding in him. We find this idea of our reward written in John's gospel in a few places. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. In our last verse here, verses, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, I'm your eternal gift, and I in him, you're mine. He is that bears much fruit. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone doesn't abide with me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Kids, that's not what it sounds like. I don't have enough time to go through that, but if you want to have a mini children's sermon, come up and see me after. We'll ask an interesting question last uh, week at the, toward the end of last sermon, and I want to ask a similar question to, today uh, in a little bit different way. Do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? The reality of wanting Jesus is different than wanting knowledge of Jesus. Wanting Jesus exposes you to the lordship reality of God that most of us would rather ignore. Certainly, we want all the good stuff. We want to be saved, right? We want friends. We want community on this earth, and we want all of those things. But do we really want Jesus and in that to release all control of our lives? We've already discussed some ways that we know better than him, we live that way every day. If you give me a head full of knowledge about Jesus, then I do not have a person to whom I have to give any kind of account. I just have head knowledge. I can control that situation however I see fit and call myself a believer because I could probably give you some pretty good answers to the questions that you're gonna ask me. But if you give me Jesus, I'm forced to come face to face with eternal love a story that breaks down every barrier I could possibly put up. Because Jesus doesn't come to judge, he comes to give eternal life in him as your prized possession. And you see it and it breaks you down. I'm faced to respond with every fiber of my being. I'm forced to know my own desperate state, but not in some negative way. I'm forced to know it because I know the love and beauty of what's been freely given to me. If you've, if you've entered into your heavenly father's family, do you remember that moment? Do you remember when it happened? Do you remember being on your knees? Maybe you were on the ground crying, maybe in a fetal position, and you were able to say, my Lord and my God, I know who you are. Do you know your Christian birthday? That's a fun thing. I don't know my Christian birthday. I was raised by parents who loved Jesus and exposed me to it all the time and by grandparents. I have a wonderful story of a covenant child. You had two baptisms today. Is that the heart of you guys as you raise up your kids? 
that they would never know a day they didn't see their parents worshiping and that this truth was always embedded in them. I don't see it as any less of a miracle for me. I really don't. My parents were converted in the front of a funeral parlor on a random Sunday in uh, Seaford, Delaware. You know, I, I come from, am I allowed to call you Jesus Free Kippies? I come from Jesus Free Kippies. Great people who always raised me in that way, and I, that's, that's when we take those vows like we did for the kids this morning, that's the implication of that, that those kids will see it. And verse 12 serves to reinforce the reality of everything that we've been talking about. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever doesn't, doesn't. A female student from the beginning of my sermon uh, never finished that conversation with me. Um, like most of us, the speed of life and the speed of life smacking me in the face with a tortilla, uh, that was enough to derail her, it was enough to derail our conversation, but I trust that we'll finish it. It was one that started a long time ago between us and has continued. But what about you? Do you have the sun? We're in... Uh, we're amongst intellectual giants in our congregation. A lot of really smart people here. But I can't help but think that in a crowd this size, some of us can't make heads or tails of, of whether we want the son or not, let alone whether we have him. I plead with you to consider the simple gospel reality. Remember, I'm slowing down to give a simple gospel reality. That's what this is. Please consider this gospel reality. The very God of heaven sent his only son to live and to die and to be raised again so that people like you and people like me can forever be called sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of the living God. Not some abstract thought, not a theory. A reality that should guide the way that we live. In Jesus, he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Giving our stories a loving place in his story. For those of you who walked in here suffering, I hope you're reminded today that there is a God who loves you and who cares for you. Take heart. He's still in control. Those of you who believe and yet we let life carry us away into unbelief, and we go to places of fear, take heart. God's testimony to us is as true today as it's ever been. Run back to your father. He's waiting with open arms. Our God gives us his word. He gives us his spirit, and he gives us his son. His story of love invites us all, all of us today, into his family. Pray with me. God, thank you for um, the simple reality and the glory of your gospel the glory of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. I pray that as we consider the reality of him, that we will indeed want him, that we will not uh, want ideas of him and notions of him, but that we'll want and desire Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us to hear your truth again this morning. And we pray that it would serve to advance your kingdom. In the great name of our King Jesus, amen. For more information, visit us online at southwood.org.